0: We ask the distributors for services, and we should pay for those. Customers should pay for the service that they require and they want. The question is how to pay for that and uh, how the marketplace or the industry gets to that paying for it. Ultimately, today, I think the supplier thinks they pay for it. The customer thinks they pay for it. And and that's, I think, really the key and the core issue is who's truly paying for the service level.
1: Connect. Influence optimize you're listening to the channel channel a podcast for executives and others involved in the authorized sale of electronic components brought to you by the ecia the electronic component industry association working to promote and improve the authorized distribution channel welcome to the channel channel and i am here with this week's guest ed smith ed is the CEO and president of SMTC and uh, has been a long time active member of the ECIA in his past career. So, we're going to get to know Ed a little bit and get his
0: perspectives on the industry. So, welcome, Ed. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I was even with ECA before ECA existed with NITA, And uh, I really was excited to see uh, the suppliers, the reps, and the distributors get together. And form a a group that the whole industry could have a voice and and move forward. So, uh, you know, I'm excited to be here today for sure.
1: Fantastic. I start every episode asking our guests a question, uh, which is,
0: what is your favorite word? Oh, favorite word. That's, I guess, empowerment, since we were talking about that earlier today. Uh, It made me think about that, about people's empowerment and be able to be able to do as you want and and say and and you know be happy with the things you're doing and tell us a little how you got into this industry Ed yeah so I had worked uh, in the uh distribution industry at W.W. Uh, Granger and uh that was exciting and big catalog uh, house and sold a lot of MRO stuff not very technical and uh Avnet had a, a division of uh industrial distribution I competed with Granger and you know, I went to, to work for Abnet in that industrial distribution world where margins were in the 40s and 50s, <laughs> exciting time, very different than today. Um, then ABNET sold that and they sold, uh, first part of it became Allied Electronics, uh, part of it was sold to uh, Carlton Bates and the Curtis Industries. And uh, with that, I moved over to the electronics business and learned that you work a lot harder for a lot less uh, margin, <laughs> for sure. And that's true.
1: And tell us what you're doing now with SMTC or a little about your company.
0: Sure. So I had worked with Avnet and um, uh, way back, um, you know, wanted to work for a customer and went to work for a company called Semtech, sold that and then came back to Avnet running sales and operations working for Phil Gallagher. Um, Then was ultimately promoted to president and uh, held that position for almost eight years and uh, then started an embedded business, moved on to run some embedded business and then ultimately left and uh, wrote a book and then wound up uh, working for SMTC, who's a contract manufacturer. We build aerospace, defense, uh, high, high regu- highly regulated and high quality type product. Tell us a little about the book. So the the book is, is my journey of learning how to give more than take from this world. And, and how did I learn that? When you're in your Early days, you you don't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to give more and and do that. But uh, when my wife passed away, many people gave me many things, uh, both emotional, financial. I ultimately started a scholarship for her. Then I uh, started a a golf tournament. And today, we still have that golf tournament, and we give away to military families, children, different uh, charities. We do different things. And ultimately, that's been one of the most satisfying things in my life. So I decided to write the journey of how I got to that point.
1: Well, you certainly have a history of giving back. I know you've been actively involved, as you said, in NETA originally and with ECIA and uh, been a guest speaker at several of our conferences. But tell us a little about how you got involved and in, in overall your experience in being involved with the Industry Association.
0: Sure. I, you know, I have a belief that if you're going to work in an industry, you, you owe something back to the industry. We make our livings. We feed our families. We're able to do things. And so uh, when Phil Gallagher was, uh, had gone through the Nita board and had moved off the Nita board, then I moved on uh, first through the foundation and helping people through education and, and some of that. And that was a very exciting time, uh, to be honest with you, because I started meeting people outside my small sphere of influence. Um, then I moved on to the Nita board, out of the foundation board, and met more people. And uh, it was a really exciting time for me and f- I think for the industry as we started talking about could we combine with the OEMs, could we combine with the reps, how do we work together as an industry, and in an industry at the time which was struggling uh, in bits and pieces. And so, um, you know, I think John Denslinger and Michael Knight and others, you know, came up with a great idea of putting these things together, and uh, we started that process. It became ECIA. I continued to be on the board, and, you know, some of it was really fun, some of it was hard work, but in the end, I, I thought it was great that the industry had a voice. They could set standards. They could do things that were necessary for the industry to be good.
1: Well, speaking of having a voice, you obviously have a big voice in this industry. You're outspoken on a lot of industry topics, and we'd really like to dive into this a little bit. I know our, our listeners would like to hear what you what your take is on the current market and, and what's going on in the industry.
0: Yeah, so, you know, last year in 2019, so uh, I think you'll be seeing this at the early part of 2020, but 2019, I think, was a pivotal year. You know, we had this inventory overhang from lead times condensing. They were condensed very rapidly. Um, you know, there were people not taking orders and people would get on very regular parts 28-week lead times, 30-week lead times. And for us, a customer, you know, this put us in that we were not very flexible to our customers. Um, And so our customers started ordering more inventory to to help with this flexibility and and doing those things. Well, when lead times collapsed and they moved to a much more regular 8 weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, well, now everybody had inventory. And you had to burn off the difference between that 8 weeks and 28 weeks. So you had 20 weeks of inventory and flexibility that needed to be burned off. And uh, that happened pretty rapidly at the uh, second half of this year. I think in 2019, that'll end either in late December, early January, we'll get back to a more normalized state. I'm already seeing signs that uh, we'll see growth um, from that. I don't think the underlying demand has been dramatically affected. I look at GDP, I look at the marketplace. And so I think this is just an inventory uh, correction. And uh, those have a tendency through my experience at Abnet, those have a tendency to correct themselves uh, in in the length of time that it collapsed over that same length of time it corrects itself. So I think very early Q1 it will fix that and that should be exciting time for sure.
1: That's great news. Taking a broader view what what, what do you see as some of the strategic challenges our industry and particularly the supply chain of our industry is facing?
0: Yeah, so I've been very vocal over the years about this sole source, uh, single distributor model, um, the the reduction of reps, uh, that type of thing, or you could call it ultimately the collapse of the GP uh, in the distribution model. And, um, you know, it never comes back. So when it goes away, it never comes back. So on the financial side of it, as there's less GP to be had by the reps, by the distributors, that's not good for anybody. On the customer side of it, it limits our ability of who we can go to, which limits our flexibility. And when we have supply chains in place, it's, it's really very disruptive that we have to move things. We, we may have business. You know, as a customer, we use our distributors partially as a bank, as a supply chain, as logistics, and many of these others. And when it goes to the sole source, I don't think the people who make these decisions are thinking through the fact that there's a customer on the end. I, I would find this industry to say, The customer is normally taking into account the least of how disruptive it can be. I'm sure for the distributors, you know, the margin degradation over these years have been pretty dramatic, as you can see from their public filings on the public ones. And so that margin doesn't come back. So they have to change their models. And, And as a customer, when there's less margin and they have to change their models, we get less services. We get less flexibility. And uh, in the end, less flexibility, less service isn't something that we look forward to and is pretty negative. So the sole source um, model has not been good for us. I'm I'm sure it hasn't been good for the distributors. I don't spend enough time asking those questions, but I I know the couple of instances I was involved in with the distributors wasn't uh, a positive experience for sure.
1: What do you see as the driving force behind manufacturers moving to a narrower set of channel partners or, or the sole source channel model?
0: You know, I would say the number one that I can see has to be clearly financial. The, the clawing back of the gross margin that they believe is, is theirs. Um, and, you know, I'm not so sure that that's correct either because we ask the distributors for services, and we should pay for those. Customers should pay for the service that they require and they want. The question is how to pay for that and um, how the marketplace or the industry gets to that paying for it. Ultimately, today, I think the supplier thinks they pay for it, the customer thinks they pay for it, and, and that's, I think, really the key and the core issue is who's truly paying for the service level. So when there's a sole source, that limits the amount of ways to pay for it. And I think the, the you know margin then becomes the problem. and. it it really hurts our supply chain because our flexibility goes down. And, you know, as a tier three, that's what we're known for, being more flexible. And then you have the service level. Not every distributor's service level is exactly the same. And so when it goes to sole source, we obviously don't get the same service. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's not. But the reality is in many of those cases in sole source, even the inventory levels are dictated to the distributor. And when that happens, obviously it may not have the inventory that we would like and when we would like it. So it does affect our our customer service for sure.
1: Where is the industry on this trend? Do you feel we've we've gone down a point of no return? Are people reevaluating the model? Where do you see it going from here?
0: Well, you know, the interesting thing is, I I think it's, uh, believe it or not, a roundabout benefit to um, some different people. One of them Is the catalog houses or they call you know different names the online houses Um, but the reality is when it's not as flexible and we have upsides immediate upside or immediate downside or we're doing NPI or some of those others where we would normally buy something through a distributor we now have to buy it online wherever we can get it as quickly as we can get it and um, you know that changes the way we buy things who we buy from um, how we move business around so Clearly, it changes our model and how we go to market uh, with our customers. And uh, like I said, I think in many of these cases, the customer is not taken into account uh, on, on how things are done uh, and how we do our supply chain and those type of things. You mentioned
1: this shrinking gross profit pool and how it's very hard to uh, get that back once, once it's shrunk. Are, are, are there any moves the industry could make to...
0: Uh, make it more profitable for all the players in the in the supply chain. You know, it's always a tough one because I don't I don't run the OEMs and I don't run the distributors today. Um, you know, but clearly, I think one of the things that we as a customer would like to see is the distributors could quote us quicker and things if they had a set uh, cost on products. Um, today, one of the things I think that's really hurt the customer service is quotes take us five days, ten days. Um, to get because of registrations and other reasons and information they need to get from the supplier. If there were some set costs that distributors had and then they could add on the services and the the costs and their markup and margin and all those things, the industry, I think, would be much more efficient, much quicker to market, um, much more valuable. And and clearly parts of the market already have that. um, But I think that needs to be expanded to the whole market. So what would that mean for ship and debit? Well, um, I think the ship and debit would move from the front end part of the process where we had it just on registered parts and just on a very certain small set of parts to the back end, and uh, distributors would get the ship and debit on a, on a plethora based on their volumes with the uh, plethora of parts based on the volumes that they do with a particular OEM, and so it wouldn't be customer by customer, it would be overall volume of a set of parts and uh, deals that they may negotiate with a particular supplier. Um, And this would allow them to quote quicker, move quicker, um, do the things that our customers require of us. Our customers require of us a quote in five days now. Used to be 10 days, now it's five. In many, many cases, we cannot get pricing back in five days. And so obviously it looks like we're incapable when the reality is the whole marketplace is incapable.
1: What are some of the other challenges you as a customer see
0: uh, going forward? Yeah, I think, you know, I think scale matters. Um, you know, last year last year we did an acquisition of a company to get a little bit more scale. But as you're small, you have less buying power. You have less capability to work around some of these issues that I've already spoken about. Inventory, uh, burn down, some of those other things. Um, but clearly for us, a small EMS provider, it's scale for, for others in the EMS space, um, I think on the other end of the spectrum, a lot of the big uh, EMS providers, um, it's margin. And, and that's because they do business with big customers and their margin is um, really, really low and, and squeezed. And the reality is, you know, some of the margins I can't believe people do things at um, because one mistake and obviously you're in, in a bad situation. So, you know, I think flexibility for us is most important. So we're about to enter a, a new decade in this industry.
1: If you project ahead to the end of this coming decade to 2029, w- what do you think some of the biggest changes we'll see in our industry and supply chain?
0: Oh, it's, I was going to say the word that I, I would use for 20, uh, 2020 and, and going forward to 2030 would be, there's going to be dramatic change. Um, we can't continue to live with margins where they are and do all the services and things. So clearly the model... I think over the next 10 years is gonna change. The last 10 years, we've seen the gross margin degradation you know, in the 30, 40% range from where it was at the beginning of the decade to the end of the decade. If that was to happen uh, for this decade, clearly uh, the models would be completely different than they are today. And so the question is, will the margin continue to decline at, at the rapid pace it is? Will the models change? Um, who will change quickest, how will that happen. Um, I think those are the questions that, you know, I can't, I I today can't answer. I can tell you everybody can strap in. There'll be change over the next 10 years. The question is what and when and what will it look like when it comes out?
1: How can we as an industry association best prepare for and and drive this change in the right direction?
0: Yeah, I, I think the industry... Can, so I think they do a lot of great things, setting standards, getting together on taking some of the big industry issues on. But ultimately, there's there's a couple fundamental issues that I think have to be worked out in the industry. One is data, who actually owns the data, who owns the POS, the pricing data. What? How can that be used for and against distributors and customers? Who owns that and how is that used? Um, clearly, when you have a sole source Situation like we're starting to get more and more of, I, I think the OEM thinks they own all of that data. And um, if you're distributors, you, you actually have a lot of data you could aggregate and use as ways to go to market and different things. So I think w- one of the things the association is going to need to take on is maybe be the, the moderator in the debate about who owns the data, what data, how do we use that data in a positive influence and not a negative influence um, in the industry. But clearly data is going to become more and more important, more and more sensitive. I think today, um, a lot of that data, in particular for the bigger distributors, is used against them after they acquire it and they give it back to the OEM. is used against them in not always the most uh, positive or effective way. So I think that's going to become one of the big battlegrounds is data. And I'm not so sure 10 years ago people would have sat down and said data would be the battleground um, in the industry. And I think that will be... Um, And the data then leads to marketing and pricing and and who's the customer, who owns that data. And I think the the next battleground will be pricing. How is the pricing done? Is it done the same way like we just talked about, shipping debits? Is it done as more commoditized type pricing? How does that all work? Um, And so I think that's another place where the industry association can kind of be the moderator on on a debate and maybe actually help create some standards that get it to a a reasonable place i think today um there's a frustration on on, i think multiple sides um that there's they're not getting what they want the oem is getting not what they want the distributors are not getting what they want um and that this data and pricing uh situation is a little bit out of control okay what else you know in, in the end um You know, I I look at the industry as when I started versus where I am and where it is today. And when I started, it was a very young industry. It was up and coming. Pricing wasn't a big concern. Margins were higher. Um, Today, it it is a, a, you know, very mature industry. And obviously now pricing becomes very important. The data becomes very important. Um, But I think the one thing that gets lost in all of this is the customer service side of it. I think you know the many of the customers are the same customers for the last ten or twenty years. Um, you know the big industrials buy the smaller companies; they get bigger. They have requirements. The bigger, you know, the bigger EMS companies buy other EMS companies, and they have their requirements. And so you see this continued uh, squeeze that goes on, where companies are buying companies. People need to be more efficient. They need to be more profitable. But in the end there's only so much that everybody can give. And I think that's where the industry association can kind of help moderate. How does that all go um, without creating, you know, controversy and and carnage around the net? What other issues are facing you as a customer, Ed? So, you know, Bill, I was just at a a conference not too long ago about obsolescence and obsolescence management. And, uh, you know, we, we play in the aerospace defense world, we play in the medical world and clearly, um, EOL, end of life, um, you know, PCNs, those type of things w- were a big topic of conversation at this conference I attended. And and I can tell you, I think the industry could do itself a, a big favor by creating a much more standardized process for winding down parts. Um, it seemed like a lot of frustration in the marketplace. It seemed like, you know, nobody knew exactly, even though there are some standards that are out there in different ways. Um, but the reality was, It didn't seem like there was one good plan on saying okay we'd notify somebody we'd go through this process of notification and if everybody was on this process everybody would make sure they were notified and then we go through this Um, they'd have three months or six months or whatever a standardized time is to place their orders and then they would get that over the next 12 months six months Um, I think if we could standardize a process for EOL and obsolescence um, it would help the industry to know, hey, here's the process, here's what we're going to follow, here's where you can get the data. If you sign up for this data, you'll always have the right data. Um, but the reality is it seemed to me to be a very um, scattered set of requirements. People didn't, you know, some people did it one way, some people did it another. But I think if the industry could come up with a standard, it would solve, it seemed like, a, a lot of customers' issues, in, uh, in particular in aerospace, defense, medical I'm sure in other ones also, but the reality is those have longer life cycles and much more difficult to change the parts. So uh, I think that would be a big one if the industry took that on. So that would be standardizing
1: the communication around and the timing of the windows for lifetime buys and, and just following that whole procedure, to get, getting people to do that in a consistent fashion?
0: Yeah, I think having where the communication will go, what the communication will be, that standardization. The amount of time after that communication is released to when the purchase has to be placed uh, for a lifetime by, how long until shipment, if all of that was standard, as soon as people saw there was an EOL notification, they could, the, the customer could start figuring out, okay, here's my requirements, here's what I need to do to make sure that I don't get caught flat-footed. Um, today, it seems like not everybody follows the same set of rules and of engagement, And so there's a frustration I could tell at the conference about, hey, here's the best way to do it, and then somebody else would say, well, I have a better way to do it, and it didn't seem very uh, smooth in terms of transition. And as you know, the industry changing, and and will continue to change, we'll have more and more EOL as time goes on. Things will continue to get smaller, Um, wafers will get smaller, and things will change, so I think if there was a more consistent way to get that data to customers, maybe a collection, maybe the industry could be the collector of PCNs and EOLs. And so if you signed up for the ECA website and they got every single one of them, then customers would know. I'm not sure what the answer is, just one thought. Um, But the reality is it's a problem in the industry, obsolescence, and something needs to be dealt with for sure. Very good. Any other closing comments or thoughts for our listening audience? You know, other than, yeah, first of all, thank you. And, and you know, the industry has been great to me. So I, I have nothing but, uh, you know, true, true respect and, and I care about the industry. Um, you know, I, I would say I think there's some really big hurdles in the next couple of years in terms of sole source, in terms of some of these things that are going on and the, the dramatic changes in models and all of that. And, you know, I wish everybody luck in in getting through all of that. So other than that, thanks for having me. I appreciate
1: it. It's been great to have you on the show, Ed. We always love to hear your your thoughts, and uh, we hope uh, we can get you back on the show again uh, sometime next year.
0: You got it. Thanks, Bill. You have a great holiday.
1: Thank you. You too, Ed. That wraps up this edition of the Channel Channel. Please join us in a couple weeks for our next episode. Take care, everybody. (laughs)